a star witness. Hello everyone, this is Kayla bringing another episode. And before we get started, let's say a word of prayer as usual because we want the Lord to lead and guide and direct as we continually learn all that he would have us to learn. Without further ado, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for all of the blessings that we take for granted, the air that we breathe, getting up in the morning, the sunshine, the fresh air, all of the tiny and the big blessings. We thank you for that. Lord, I ask that you help us to stand apart from the world. Help us to be a light unto them. Help us to shine so that they may see your love and your goodness. Help us to be able to show the world that you love them and want what's best for them. Lord, the world is a crazy place and now more than ever we need you in our lives and we need your guidance and direction. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us all of the knowledge that you've given us to prepare us for what is to come upon the world. And we are going to face many great trials and tribulations, but we also know that you do not give us more than we are capable of handling. So we thank you in advance for preparing us for what is to come. And we ask that you continue to lead and guide and direct us. And we thank you for all that you have done and will do for us. In your precious, holy, wonderful son's name, amen. All right, I wanted to read this passage in A Call to Stand Apart, because we are called to stand apart from the world. We're called to stand apart and be lights, like I said in my prayer. And this chapter is really amazing, and it shares a lot of important things. So with that being said, it's the chapter, The Answer Lies in the Soil, and we'll read and discuss it. The very first thing is Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and 18 through 23. It says, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore, and he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When any one heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet he hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. But he that hath receiveth seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. By the Sea of Galilee, a company had gathered to see and hear Jesus, an eager, expectant throng. The sick were there, lying on their mats, waiting to present their cases before him. It was Christ's God-given right to heal the woes of a sinful race. And he now rebuked disease and diffused around him life and health and peace. As the crowd continued to increase, the people pressed
press close about Christ until there was no room to receive them. Then, speaking a word to the men in their fishing boats, he stepped into the boat that was waiting to take him across the lake. And bidding his disciples push off a little from the land, he spoke to the multitude upon the shore. Beside the sea lay the beautiful plain of Genzerat. Beyond rose the hills, and upon hillside and plain both sowers and reapers were busy, the one casting seed and the other harvesting the early grain. Looking upon the scene, Christ said the words, Behold, the sower went forth to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Christ's mission was not understood by the people of his time. The manner of his coming was not in accordance with their expectations. This expectation Christ answered in the parable of the sower. Not by force of arms, not by violent interpositions, was the kingdom of God to prevail, but by the implanting of a new principle in the hearts of men. He that soweth the good seed is the son of man, Matthew 13:37. Christ had come not as a king, but as a sower. Not for the overthrow of kingdoms, but for the scattering of seed. Not to point his followers to earthly triumphs and national greatness, but to a harvest to be gathered after patient toil and through losses and disappointment. The Pharisees perceived the meaning of Christ's parable, but to them its lesson was unwelcome. They affected not to understand it. To the multitude it involved in still greater mystery the purpose of the new teacher, whose words had so strangely moved their hearts and so bitterly disappointed their ambitions. The disciples themselves had not understood the parable, but their interest was awakened. They came to Jesus privately and asked for an explanation. Sometimes we ourselves get disappointed because God doesn't answer the prayer that we ask in the way that we want it to. But this lesson still is applicable in our day and age because we know that that Christ knows what's best for us. And whether the answer to our prayers is wait a while or no or yes, we need to accept that and believe that he did it for our best interest. I mean, we're happy when he says yes to our prayers and get all excited, but do we have the same understanding when he says no or even wait until the time is right? No, we get impatient. We might even get angry. We might get sad. We might get all of these other emotions, but we have to understand Understand that the Lord does know what's best for us and we have to trust in him and accept that answer whether the answer be whatever it is and that is really hard for us to do because we want things our way and no other way and that's what we're used to getting but we must accept by faith the things that we cannot see and we can get the help that we need and we can ask for patience and we can pray that the Lord gives us understanding and courage to accept the things that we cannot change and it's amazing when we put our trust and our whole being into Christ. And he doesn't disappoint us and leave us. He's there for us unconditionally. She continues, The sower soweth the word. Christ came to sow the world with truth. Ever since the fall of man, Satan has been sowing the seeds of error. It was by a lie that he first gained control over men. And thus he still works to overthrow God's kingdom in the earth and to bring men under his power. A sower from a higher world. Christ came to sow the seeds of truth. He who had stood in the counsels of God, who had dwelt in the innermost sanctuary of the eternal, could bring to men the pure principles of truth. Ever since the fall of man, Christ has been the 
revealer of the truth to the world. By him the incorruptible seed, the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, is communicated to men. 1 Peter 1.23 In that first promise spoken to our fallen race in Eden, Christ was sowing the gospel seed. But it is to his personal ministry among men and to the work which he thus established that the parable of the sower especially applies. The word of God is the seed. Every seed has in itself a germinating principle. In it, the life of the plant is enfolded. So there is life in God's word. Christ says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. John 6, 63. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. John 5, 24. In every command and in every promise of the word of God is the power, the very life of God, by which the command may be fulfilled and the promise realized. He who by faith receives the word is receiving the very life and character of God. This is amazing. It's like this book is a life on its own. We read these words, we get empowered by them when we believe on them and accept them by faith, knowing that it was the Lord who spoke through these men and revealed to us where we can be saved and we can prosper. And that is mind-blowing. We just have to rely more on the Lord and more on his promises instead of our own self. Because when we rely on ourselves, we fail time and time again. She continues, philosophical theories or literary essays, however brilliant, cannot satisfy the heart. The assertions and inventions of men are of no value. Let the word of God speak to the people. Let those who have heard only traditions and human theories and maxims hear the voice of him whose word can renew the soul unto everlasting life. That with which the parable of the sower chiefly deals is the effect produced on the growth of the seed by the soil into which it is cast. Explaining the seed that fell by the wayside, he said, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. The seed sown by the wayside represents the word of God as it falls upon the heart of an inattentive hearer. Like the hard-beaten path trodden down by the feet of men and beasts is the heart that becomes a highway for the world's traffic, its pleasures and sins. Absorbed in the selfish aims and sinful indulgences, the soul is hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13 The spiritual faculties are paralyzed. Men hear the word, but understand understand it not. They do not discern that it applies to themselves. They do not realize their need or their danger. They do not perceive the love of Christ, and they pass by the message of his grace as something that does not concern them. As the birds are ready to catch up the seed from the wayside, so Satan is ready to catch away the seeds of divine truth from the soul. He fears that the word of God may awaken the careless and take effect upon the hardened heart. The seed sown upon stony ground finds little depth of soil. The plant springs up quickly, but the root cannot penetrate the rock to find nutriment to sustain its growth and it soon perishes. As soon as Matthew heard the Savior's call, immediately he rose up, left all, and followed him. But those who in the parable are said to receive the word immediately do not count the cost. They do not consider what the word of God requires of them. They do not bring it face to face with all their habits of life and yield themselves fully to its control. The roots of the plant strike down deep into the soil and hidden from sight nourish the life of the plant. So with the Christian it is by the invisible union of the soul with Christ through faith that the spiritual life is nourished. But the stony ground here is dependent upon self 
instead of Christ. They trust in their good works and good impulses and are strong in their own righteousness. They are not strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Such a one hath not root in himself, for he is not connected with Christ. The hot summer sun that strengthens and ripens the hardy grain destroys that which has no depth of root. So he who hath no root in himself dureth for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. Many receive the gospel as a way of escape from suffering, rather than as a deliverance from sin. They rejoice for a season, for they think that religion will free them from difficulty and trial. While life moves smoothly with them, they may appear to be consistent Christians, but they faint beneath the fiery test of temptation. They cannot bear reproach for Christ's sake. When the word of God points out some cherished sin or requires self-denial or sacrifice, they are offended. It would cost them too much effort to make a radical change in their life. They look at the present inconvenience and trial and forget the eternal realities. There is so much in these paragraphs that is so important. So let's take a little bit away from what we've read so far. First, we cannot expect to get our truth from the world because the world has so many diluted truths. Some truth mixed with error, some completely in error. Those who look to the intelligence of other men cannot hope to understand the world that we are living in. Like atheists, they don't believe in God. Evolutionists who think the world just happened by circumstance and happenstance and whatever else that they believe, each one believes it differently. None of these people understand because they cannot accept by faith what God has said in his word. And then you have the people who they like to hear the truth and they want to accept the truth, but things in their life get in their way. They don't want to fully commit. They think just by accepting Christ, it's good enough and they can live their life however they want. But that's not the case. We must give up all for Christ like he gave up all for us. And a lot of people don't consider the consequences of accepting Christ as their savior because there is no persecution going on nowadays where the soul doesn't feel like they are giving up anything for him. Back in the early Christian experience, they had to fight and claw for what they believed in and they knew the penalty and the consequences of believing in a savior that was risen. They faced imprisonment, they faced poisoning, they faced death, they faced the cross, they faced torture, they faced being separated from their friends and their family. They faced ridicule and mockery and people laughing at them because of the way that they believed because it was so different from the time in which they were living in. And this is the cost that is talking about. This is where we need that connection with Christ that is strong and good. We need to have that faith that is firm in the foundation of Christ where we are rooted and grounded in the truth and in Christ alone because it is only when we have that connection and know the cost and count the cost and we are aware that soon and very soon trials and tribulations are going to come like nothing we have ever seen or heard of before then we will realize where we stand and whether we will stand for the right or whether we will crumble and fall when times get tough then the truth of the character comes out in the person will we remain strong under persecution when we are going hungry when we don't have water when we don't have all of the comforts that we are used to now or will we say okay I give in because I don't want to give up the things that I'm used to and I need the comforts of life now is the time to prepare our hearts now is the time to get ready for the time to come by establishing that love with Christ by praying by studying the word of God by 
knowing the truth and believing in the truth and in his promises and this is what this lesson is teaching us and this is why he gave us this parable for us to understand and to know that we must have all of these things and to be rooted deeply into the ground like the roots took hold and not be in the stony path and not be in any of these other paths by the wayside by the thorns we must be firm in the ground she continues love must be the principle of action love is the underlying principle of god's government in heaven and earth and it must be the foundation of the christian's character this alone can make and keep him steadfast this alone can enable him to withstand trial and temptation and love will be revealed in sacrifice the plan of redemption was laid in sacrifice a sacrifice so broad and deep and high that it is immeasurable christ gave all for us and those who receive christ will be ready to sacrifice all for the sake of their redeemer the thought of his honor and glory will come before anything else he also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful fruitful. The gospel seed often falls among thorns and noxious weeds, and if there is not a moral transformation in the human heart, if old habits and practices in the former life of sin are not left behind, if the attributes of Satan are not expelled from the soul, the wheat crop will be choked. The thorns will come to be the crop and will kill out the wheat. Grace can thrive only in the heart that is being constantly prepared for the precious seeds of truth. The thorns of sin will grow in any soil. They need no cultivation cultivation, but grace must be carefully cultivated. The briars and thorns are always ready to spring up, and the work of purification must advance continually. If the heart is not kept under the control of God, if the Holy Spirit does not work unceasingly to refine and ennoble the character, the old habits will reveal themselves in the life. Men may profess to believe the gospel, but unless they are sanctified by the gospel, their profession is of no avail. If they do not gain the victory over sin, then sin is gaining the victory over them. The thorns that have been cut off but not uprooted grow apace until the soul is overspread with them. Christ specified the things that are dangerous to the soul. As recorded by Mark, he mentions the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things. The cares of this world, no class is free from the temptation to worldly care. To the poor, toil and deprivation and the fear of want bring perplexities and burdens. To the rich come fear of loss and a multitude of anxious cares. They do not trust to his constant care. Christ cannot carry their burden because they do not cast it upon him. Therefore, the cares of life which should drive them to the Savior for help and comfort separate them from him. We must have trust in the Lord to bring us through all of these circumstances. We must cultivate grace day by day. Just as when we have a garden and there's weeds growing, we have to pluck them out before it gets overspread. If we let the weeds just continually grow, they'll soon choke out the life of the plant that we want to bear fruit and to produce fruit. That is why when we tend our gardens, we pluck out the weeds as we see them so that it doesn't get overgrown super fast and we can't control it anymore. Because if you let it lie, you realize it has taken over the whole garden and you don't have any more fruit and you don't know what to do because it's too late. And this is why we need to cultivate in ourselves daily 
actually this grace because we cannot let sin and temptation take over our lives. And it is only through love of the Lord that we can do this. Love for him and love for what he's done for us that we can hope to get all of these things in our lives, hope to get grace cultivated in us. We must have all of these things in us and then we must believe in the truth and be obedient to him because we have that love for the Lord in our hearts. It all goes back to love, obedience, believing in the prophecies, all of the other things fall under love of the Lord and wanting to follow him because we love him. We get too caught up in what we want from this world. We forget about the world to come. And this is what she says next. Many who might be fruitful in God's service become bent on acquiring wealth. Their whole energy absorbed in business enterprises and they feel obliged to neglect things of a spiritual nature. Thus they separate themselves from God. We are enjoined in the scriptures to be not slothful in business. Romans 12 11. We are to labor that we may impart to him who needs. Christians must work. They must engage in business and they can do this without committing sin. But many become so absorbed in business that they have no time for prayer. No time for the study of the Bible. No time to seek and serve God. At times the longings of the soul go out for holiness and heaven. But there is no time to turn aside from the din of the world to listen to the majestic and authoritative utterances of the Spirit of God. The things of eternity are made subordinate, the things of the world supreme. It is important for the seed of the word to bring forth fruit, for the life of the soul is given to nourish the thorns of worldliness, the deceitfulness of riches. The love of riches has an infatuating, deceptive power. Too often those who possess worldly treasure forget that it is God who gives them power to get wealth. They say, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth, Deuteronomy 8.17. Their riches, instead of awakening gratitude to God, lead to the exaltation of self. They lose the sense of their dependence upon God and their obligation to their fellow men. Instead of regarding wealth as a talent to be employed for the glory of God and the uplifting of humanity, they look upon it as a means of serving themselves. Instead of developing in man the attributes of God, riches thus used are developing in him the attributes of Satan. The seed of the word is choked with thorns and pleasures of this life. There is danger and amusement that is sought merely for self-gratification. All habits of indulgence that weaken the physical powers that becloud the mind or that benumb the spiritual perceptions are fleshly lusts which war against the soul, 1 Peter 2.11, and the lusts of other things. These are not necessarily things sinful in themselves, but something that is made first instead of the kingdom of God. Whatever attracts the mind from God, whatever draws the affection away from Christ is the enemy to the soul. When the mind is youthful and vigorous and susceptible of rapid development, there is great temptation to be ambitious for self, to serve self. If worldly schemes are successful, there is an inclination to continue in a line that deadens conscience and prevents a correct estimate as to what constitutes real excellence of character. When circumstances favor this development, growth will be seen in a direction prohibited by the word of God. All of these things work together to destroy us. We have to guard from so many avenues, money and riches of any kind, whether it's wealth of land, wealth of food, wealth of the blessings that we have. We take it for granted instead of going to the Lord and thanking him for watching out for us, for leading and guiding us, for giving us the blessings of money and food and clothes and all that we take for granted. 
granted. And when we have all of these blessings, we get comfortable in our lifestyle and we don't remember it is God who gave us this in the first place. And then because we have all of these things and we get into this comfortable lifestyle, we turn toward worldly amusements and the pleasures that this world has to offer instead of turning to God and what he would have us to do. And then our characters get more and more debased and more and more evil. And before we know it, we are more like the world. And we look back and we wonder where it all went wrong. And it all started from one little thing that we could have changed, but we get too caught up in life. We must take day by day and spend that time with God because we cannot let our life and the busyness of the life get in the way of spending that time with God. It is imperative that we spend that time with the Lord. She continues, in this formative period of their children's life, the responsibility of parents is very great. It should be their study to surround the youth with right influences, influences that will give them correct views of life and its true success. Instead of this, how many parents make it their first object to secure for their children worldly prosperity? All their associations are chosen with reference to this object. Many parents make their home in some large city and introduce their children into fashionable society. They surround them with the influences that encourage worldliness and pride. In this environment, the mind and soul are dwarfed. The high and noble aims of life are lost sight of. The privilege of being sons of God, heirs of eternity, is bartered for worldly gain. Many parents seek to promote the happiness of their children by gratifying their love of amusements. They allow them to engage in sports and to attend parties of pleasure and provide them with money to use freely in display and self-gratification. The more the desire for pleasure is indulged, the stronger it becomes. The interest of these youth is more and more absorbed in amusement until they come to look upon it as the great object of life. They form habits of idleness and self-indulgence that make it almost impossible for them ever to become steadfast Christians. Even the church, which should be the pillar and the ground of the truth, is found encouraging the selfish love of pleasure. When money is to be raised for religious purposes, to what means do many churches resort? To bazaars, suppers, fancy fairs, even to lotteries and like devices. Often the place set apart for God's worship is desecrated by feasting and drinking, buying, selling, and merrymaking. Respect for the house of God and reverence for his worship are lessened in the minds of the youth. The barriers of self-restraint are weakened. Selfishness, appetite, the love of display are appealed to, and they strengthen as they are indulged. The pursuit of pleasure and amusement centers in the cities. Many parents who choose a city home for their children, thinking to give them greater advantages, meet with disappointment and too late repent their terrible mistake. The cities of today are fast becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. The many holidays encourage idleness, the exciting sports, theater-going, horse racing, gambling, liquor, drinking, and reveling stimulate every passion to intense activity. The youth are swept away by the popular current. Those who learn to love amusement for its own sake open the door to a flood of temptations. They give themselves up to social gaiety and thoughtless mirth, and their intercourse with pleasure lovers has an intoxicating effect upon the mind. They are led on from one form of dispensation to another until they lose both the desire and the capacity for a life of usefulness. Their religion aspirations are chilled. Their spiritual life is darkened. All the nobler faculties of the soul, all that link man with the spiritual world, are debased. It is true that some may see their folly and repent. God may pardon them, but they have wounded their own souls and brought upon themselves a lifelong peril. The power of discernment, which ought ever to be kept keen and sensitive to distinguish between right and wrong, is in a great measure destroyed. They are not quick to recognize 
recognize the guiding voice of the Holy Spirit, or to discern the devices of Satan. Too often in time of danger they fall under temptation and are led away from God. The end of their pleasure-loving life is ruined for this world and for the world to come. Cares, riches, pleasures are all used by Satan in playing the game of life for the human soul. The warning is given, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. He who reads the hearts of men as an open book says, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with suffering and drunkenness and cares of this life. Luke 21, 34. And the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit writes, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, well, some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. Throughout the parable of the sower, Christ represents the different results of the sowing as depending upon the soil. In every case, the sower and the seed are the same. Thus, he teaches that if the word of God fails of accomplishing its work in our hearts and lives, the reason is to be found in ourselves. But the result is not beyond our control. True, we cannot change ourselves, but the power of choice is ours, and it rests with us to determine what we will become. The wayside the stony ground, the thorny ground hearers need not remain such. The Spirit of God is ever seeking to break the spell of infatuation that holds men absorbed in worldly things and to awaken a desire for the imperishable treasure. It is by resisting the Spirit that men become inattentive to or neglectful of God's Word. They are themselves responsible for the hardness of heart that prevents the good seed from taking root and for the evil growths that check its development. The Garden of the heart must be cultivated. The soil must be broken up by deep repentance for sin. Poisonous satanic plants must be uprooted. The soil once overgrown by thorns can be reclaimed only by diligent labor. So the evil tendencies of the natural heart can be overcome only by earnest effort in the name and strength of Jesus. The Lord bids us by his prophet, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Jeremiah 4, 3 and Hosea. Isaiah 10, 12. This work he desires to accomplish for us, and he asks us to cooperate with him. And we can cooperate with him. And this is not the end of the chapter. It has a couple more paragraphs that I encourage you to read for yourself in your spare time. It is an amazing chapter, but we must work together with Christ and break up the poisonous roots that Satan holds on our heart. And it could be any number of things that take a hold of us. And sometimes it's more than one thing that draws our attention and our eyes from looking upon the Savior. And we need to take day by day to weed out the evilness, to go to the Lord in prayer, to ask for his help, to lean on him and have that connection with him and have that love with him and spend that time with him. We must be diligent as we would anything else in our lives, whether in a work or our garden. We take the time to do what's necessary for that. We need to take the time necessary for what's most important and that's eternal salvation and 
then we need to cultivate good seed in our hearts so that it takes root and that only good things grow and not the poisonous evil vines of Satan in our hearts. We must use the time we are given now because time is running short and pretty soon it will run completely out and we have been given a probation period, an extended probation period before the Lord is coming to bring us home with him and now is the time to get ready. And I hope that you get ready and want to break up all of these things in your heart and I want to do the same in mine. I'll be praying for you and I hope you be praying for me. I thought this song fit really well with our topic. So it's called Sowing in the Morning. Sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, sowing in the sunshine, sowing in the shadows, fearing neither clouds nor winter's chilling breeze. By and by the harvest and the labor ended, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, going forth with weeping, sowing for the master, though the loss sustained our spirit often grieves. When our weeping's over, he will bid us welcome, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. And we will come rejoicing because not only do we need to plant the seed in ourselves to grow, but we need to cultivate that seed and help nourish it in others as well. And I want you to go and read the rest of that chapter for yourselves and really take it in and study it out so that you can understand and grasp the full meaning and really realize how beautiful a lesson it is. And we can think about that every time we see somebody harvesting, somebody in the garden, somebody doing all of these things. And that is why the Lord used uses these everyday lessons so that it will bring to our memory every time we see these things in everyday life. And it's really amazing that he did that because it helps us to ever remember the lessons that he was trying to bring to the forefront of our mind. So remember what it says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. So with all this being said, let your light so shine so that you are a star witness for the Lord.